Jonah is such a small book, but it packs, as we will find out, and as I trust, we've already seen a mighty big punch. The book of Jonah is often uh, well-known and understood in some senses, and even in the secular world, the story of Jonah is referred to and thought well of, and when most people think of the book of Jonah, what immediately, let me ask you, pops into your mind? This is a story about what? A fish. It's a story about a man who is swallowed by a fish. And I want to submit to you today that while Jonah plays a prominent part in the book that is titled after his name, he does not play the dominant part in this story. Jonah is in some senses about Jonah, the man, but in way more senses, it is about the God who pursues this man, Jonah. The hero of this story is not Jonah. In fact, we see Jonah time and time again is a complete mess and a massive failure. The hero of this story over and over and over again, we are reminded, is a gracious and compassionate God. And I love the song that we're singing, It's Who You Are. I I love that. And we've thought through this song and introducing it during the series because the story of Jonah really is the story of the unending character and nature of God. The story of Jonah is a story of Jonah's God, the same God that we serve, that we know, who has graciously intervened in our lives in the same way that he has graciously intervened in Jonah's life. I want to begin by reading our text this morning. In fact, I want to back up. We wrestled through the first few verses last week, and I want to begin just at verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 16. So would you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word? It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish on this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the story of how God pursues with full force those who even rebel against him in ways such as Jonah. We saw last week that Jonah had quite a comfortable life in ministry. He was ministering during a time of great blessing, and Israel's borders were being expanded. His prophecies were, prophecies, excuse me, were welcomed by the people. They loved him. He had a great reputation. He had a good life. And God calls him out of this good and comfortable life into a place to go and minister where he will be hated, where life will be hard and challenging, where, simply put, he does not want to go. He was quite content where God had him. And so instead of heeding the voice of God and the word of God, he resists the word of God and he flees, as we saw last week, from the presence of God. He runs as far away and as fast as he can from the presence of the God. And as we saw last week, we're not talking simply geographical presence. We're talking about the intimate communion, the fellowship with God that he is fleeing from. There is a sense in which he wants nothing to do with God, at least at this point in his life. And it's fascinating to think how a man who had been given so much by God, isn't it? A man who was used so mightily by God, a man who was so blessed by God, a man who was so mature in many ways in the Lord, how fast and how far and how hard he can fall. It's a warning for each one of us that though we may have the appearance of maturity, our hearts can be growing cold and be very distant from the Lord. But the good news for us is found in this text this morning that though we may try to flee from the presence of God, he flees after us, and as it's been said in the past, the hound of heaven will catch you. You cannot outrun God. And we see in this section of God's word a picture of the grace of God, his gracious intervention in our lives that he is willing to run after us even when we sometimes want nothing to do with him. You say, well, how does that happen? How does God graciously intervene in our lives? The first thing I want to point out is this, sometimes by bringing the storms, by bringing the storms that we encounter in this life. And it's, it's un, it, you cannot deny, excuse me, the, 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 the one who's responsible for the storm. Look at verse four with me. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. You can't escape who's responsible for this storm, can you? The text doesn't allow you to work your way around it to get God off the hook. The one who's responsible is God himself. In fact, the word there, hurls, is like, think of a man hurling a javelin. So God himself sees Jonah fleeing from his presence and he hurls a great wind upon the sea. Immediately, here's what you need to see. God confirms just how impossible it is for anyone to flee from his presence. And what you need to see highlighted by the Spirit of God in this text is the magnitude of the storm. In fact, you'll see this term great or exceeding on and on throughout the first chapter. 
The storm was a mighty tempest. It was a great wind hurled upon the sea. But what you need to understand is while it produced great fear in the hearts of the people, the men who were experiencing this, the one who is supposed to be seen as great and mighty is God himself. What's ultimately in view here is the greatness and the might of God who controls all things. The God for whom the wind and the waves listen and obey his voice. When we flee from God's presence, oftentimes what we find is his response is more likely to throw a storm at us than to sit back quietly. Now, it's helpful to note that not all storms in your life are a consequence of sin. The Bible is very clear about that, and sometimes as we wrestle through the things going on and the circumstances, the upheaval in our life, we can get to dangerous places if we're not careful. In fact, what you need to know is this. I was reflecting on our time through the Gospel of John, in, in particular John chapter 6, where sometimes what we learned was, you know, the, remember the disciples, they're ministering alongside Jesus, and then Jesus shoves them off into the Sea of Galilee, headlong into a storm. And in that setting, we're reminded that sometimes it's our obedience to God that brings about the storm. But make no mistake about it. We've all seen this in our own lives, haven't we? Sometimes our sin and our disobedience, our fleeing from the will of God and the word of God brings about a storm in our life. There are consequences to our sin. We don't always know why the storm is there. Let's be clear on that. But we know who is in control of the storm. Now, when we first read this part of the story, we typically assume that the storm is Jonah's punishment from God for his disobedience, that it's strictly God's anger and vengeance being poured out upon Jonah. Sometimes we view God that way in our own lives, right? That God is a vengeful, vindictive father figure who's always angry at us and always wanting to punish us. And while there's some truth to the punishment that's taking place, That, in one sense, is secondary. This isn't simply punishment that's happening in Jonah's life. This is an intervention. I want you to think about the nature of an intervention for a moment. An intervention is designed to get the attention of an individual who does not realize the condition that they're in, is it not? It's to remind somebody or to show somebody how far away from where they need to be they really are. God really, in one sense, is using this as an intervention. He's trying to get the attention of a man who doesn't realize the great trouble that he's in. Because Jonah's not just running physically from the Lord. He's running spiritually from him. He's fleeing towards sin. He's fleeing towards selfishness. Just consider this for a minute. Would it be better for Jonah if God just left him alone? Think about that. Would it be better for Jonah if God just simply left him alone, left him to his sin, let him do his own thing? And the answer is no, it would be far, far worse. Can you imagine if you look back across your life and you look at the providence of God, if God just simply left you alone in your sin, where would you be right now? Just notice this. As you think about the storms in Jonah's life and the storms sometimes in your life, it was an act of mercy for God to send the storm. It was an act of mercy for God to send the storm. Jonah, at this point in his life, desperately needs an intervention. This storm was sent to liberate Jonah from Jonah. 
It was God's way of loosing Jonah's chains of self-sufficiency and self-dependence. See, Jonah thought that running from God would make him free, but instead it made him a slave. And that's something we need to recognize about sin in our own lives. When we flee the presence of God and we run towards sin, what we think will give us freedom ultimately makes us a slave. And believe me, listen, you know this in your own life just like I do. Sin is an unrelenting taskmaster that demands more and more and more. And the chains get heavier and heavier and heavier. And the emptiness gets greater and greater and greater. It is unrelenting. The thing you think will bring you freedom and joy ends up giving you slavery and pain. Sin overpromises and underdelivers every time. And so God is wanting to loose the chains of slavery from Jonah. And the truth is we can experience true life and freedom only when we come to realize that God is God and we are not. I don't know how many times I have to learn this lesson. How many times do you think you have to learn this lesson? Over and over and over, I feel like God is teaching me in my own life. I am God and you are not. Ian, you're not in control. You're not in control the way you think you are, sometimes even in the smallest ways. I mean, the latest way, <laughs> and not a sinful way, but God really just, you know, we, we went to, to um, deliver a baby, my wife did, and we thought we had everything figured out. We thought we were having a little girl. That's what they told us. That's what they all said. And then out pops a little boy. And God's like, Ian, you're not in control, so stop thinking you are. Some of you are really scared you're getting your ultrasounds checked twice. (laughs) Sometimes to recognize God is God, and we are not, he will bring about a great storm in our life. And far from being an act of punishment, it is a demonstration of God's great love and affection for us. It's an act of great mercy. Second thing I want you to see in this text is this, just in this first section is this. God will go to great lengths to pursue a rebellious sinner. Now listen, that causes great hope in our souls, doesn't it? Because how far have we fallen from God so often in our life? How often have we turned and run in 180, the opposite direction of God? And how faithful is God time and time again to go to great lengths, sometimes devastating lengths in our lives, sometimes things that we think, how can this really be happening to be? Those things, isn't this so true? So often those are the very things that cause us to fall on our face before God and recognize how far we've truly fallen. God will go to great lengths to pursue you and me. You say, well, why is it so painful? Because he loves you so much, right? Like God, he chastises, he disciplines those whom he loves. Every child of God knows, you know the love of God in your life. When God, when you're far from him, when you're in your sin, God goes out of his way to pursue you, and sometimes it hurts. God's gracious intervention begins sometimes in bringing the storm. Secondly, in revealing the shame. In revealing the shame. Here's Jonah. And what you need to see is this. The storm is so devastating, everybody is fearing for their lives. These mariners, these seamen are no slouches. They know what it's like to be on the open sea. They know what it's like to face storms. And all of a sudden, they're hit with a storm that they believe with all of their heart will end up taking their life unless a divine deity intervenes in the situation. Notice in verse 5, Everybody is fearing for their life, and the mariners were afraid, and look at what they did. And each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. Everything goes. This is not the time to save anything. We need to preserve our lives. That's what's at stake right now. These men did not know the God of the Bible. 
Remember, Jonah is far from his hometown. He's far from God's people, and he's intentionally going to people who don't know God. He doesn't want to be reminded that he is fleeing from the presence of God, so he's got to get away from God's people. He's got to get away from his responsibilities to God's people as a prophet. He's on board a ship where these people come from all different kinds of places. They have their own cultures, their own religious convictions. They worship their own gods. Now, this picture has immense appeal to many people in our culture today. In fact, this really, in some senses, serves as a poster for religious diversity. We live in a pluralistic society Many um, people love the fact that we are made up of different cultures, religious convictions, and many people believe that that's a great thing, that look, we're all really on the same boat and all roads lead to the top of the mountain. You have your God, we have our God, and everything really works out in the end. But there's a problem with this picture. And God paints it so powerfully in this section of Scripture. You see, when all the calling on these gods was done, notice this, the storm still raged. This picture of religious diversity is celebrated today. But far far from being an ideal society and something to be celebrated in our culture, the picture of every man calling out to his own God is really a profound tragedy. Why, you say, why is that such a tragedy? Because while many gods are invoked, none of them has the power to calm the raging sea. Their gods are as helpless as they are because the gods they serve and the gods they worship are really no gods at all. They're gods of their own invention. And God is making clear through this text that there is no God but him. He is the one and only true God. Now the question that remains before us in this text, where is the man who knows this true God? I mean, where where is he when all these people are calling upon their gods and they're fearing for their lives? Where's Jonah? I mean, this is the guy. He knows the one true God. He has spoken to God and God speaks to him. Look at verse six. This is amazing. Shocker. He's sleeping. Verse five, halfway through, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And don't you love this? So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? (laughs) Like, that's an insult. I think at this point, it's fair to say the captain's not very happy. He's like, what are you doing? How are you not awake? Why are you snoring in the bottom of the boat? But here, I think, too, is a fascinating depiction of the nature of sin. And here what we see is the downward spiral of sin. You know, sin has a compounding effect. It never just keeps you stagnant and standing still. It always leads you down, 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 down. And notice this. The wording is so powerful and I believe so intentional. Jonah had gone down to Joppa to find the ship. He went down into the ship's hold and he lay down. Can you catch the emphasis of the author here? And now he is fast asleep. Herman Melville, the author of the a classic literary work, Moby Dick. In his story, he tells of a preacher who is preaching in the Mariner village and all of the mariners are there listening and he's preaching in the story on the book of Jonah. 
And as he comes to this section and he's preaching through it, here's what he says. I think such a a powerful description of what's taking place in Jonah's life. He says this, and I quote, a deep stupor steals over him as over the man who bleeds to death, for conscience is the wound. Jonah's prodigy of ponderous misery drags him drowning down to sleep. You see, flight from God always leads us downwards. We think it's somehow going to take us new heights to, to new heights in our life. We think it's going to bring us greater joy, greater pleasure. That's why we pursue sin. Because in the moment, we believe, isn't this true? We believe it's better. We believe it's better than what God is offering. And what we imagine will bring us life, peace, rest, satisfaction, comfort, you name it. It only serves to hollow us out as individuals and steal the life we so desperately seek. It produces not vibrant life, but stagnant sleep. Just mark that down. Sin makes us sleepy. Sin makes us sleepy in the physical sense and in the spiritual sense. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that sin, don't you, has a physiological effect on our bodies and on our minds. There is a deep connection with our sin lives and our physical lives. Our health is oftentimes impacted greatly by our spiritual lives. I think of David. You know the story of David. Here's King David. He's got everything. He's blessed by God. He's a prophet of God in many ways like Jonah was. He's a king over God's people. And one day he finds himself sitting on top of his roof, looking around while he should be out where when kings are at war, he's lazing about. He's got quite comfortable. And he looks across and he sees a woman bathing. He goes and he takes her for himself, knowing that it is another man's wife. She gets pregnant, so, she, so he decides to cover the whole thing up by making sure uh, her husband, Uriah, is put on the front of the battle lines and ends up dying in battle. David reflecting in the Psalms on this experience, it's powerful. Listen, and here's what we know chronologically in the Bible. David goes an entire year without addressing his sin. And as he reflects on that, you want to, he says, my life, literally the juices in my body began to drain away. It, it physically had an effect on me. I was beginning to wither away into nothing. Sin was having a powerful effect on my physical body. He reminds us, as does Jonah, that you can not experience the peace you were designed to enjoy while you run from the God who alone can supply it. Let's just be honest for a minute. Isn't it exhausting trying to run from God? And yet some of us, like we're professionals at it. It's like we're in training for the Olympics. We just keep running and we keep running and we keep running. I don't think it's any coincidence that as you look at your life when you're living in sin, you often find that you're living in a place of despair and depression. I think sin makes us spiritually sleepy as well. You know, running from God brings a cost not only to us, but to those around us. It has an impact on our spiritual life with God. It has an impact on our communion with God, our fellowship with God, and it has an impact on all those around us, and that's exactly what's happening in Jonah's life right now. All of those around him are being affected by his sin, and he's only been concerned about himself. He's not seen the wreckage that it is about to cause, and it could cost these men their very lives. 
You think of the tragedy of this picture. Jonah knows the God who controls the raging seas, but he cannot call upon him for help because he is in the middle of rebelling against God. Think about that for a second. He can't call upon God because he's running from him. How often in our sin, right, would we want to call upon God, but we feel so distant from God and we're living and loving our sin so much, we cannot call upon God. The obstacle is too great. He's surrounded. Here's the sad aspect of this picture. He's surrounded by unbelievers who desperately need to know the saving power of his God. And he has the answers, but he can't speak. He can't move forward. You see, his ministry has been silenced by secret sin. And the call for Jonah to wake up, in many ways, parallels, I believe, the call for the church in our day and age. As the captain went down and said to Jonah, what are you doing sleeping? Arise, awake, and call upon your God. I think our church and our culture at this time, for this purpose, God is calling the church to step up, to wake up. How many of us are so caught up right now in secret sin that we cannot effectively minister to those around us? How many of us are so dominated by enslaving sins in our lives? Maybe it's, it's outrageous anger. Maybe there's jealousy and covetousness and gossip and lustful thoughts and longing for comfort and pleasures that you're finding in other places other than God. How many of us are so dominated by sins that we cannot be effectively used by God? How many of us struggle to pray because we are walking in flagrant disobedience? How many of us cannot share Christ because we're living in our sin? Now we desperately need to hear the words that were spoken to Jonah, don't we? Wake up. How can you sleep? Call upon your God. In fact, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. After he has laid out the gospel, as he laid out the, the saving grace and compassion of his God, listen to what he says to the church. Here's what he says in verse 11 of Romans 13. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You say, what does that mean? What does he mean, wake from sleep? What is he calling us to? Listen to what he goes on to say. Just listen. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. You see what this is a call to, church? This is a call to wake up and start getting serious about our sin and serious about our God. This is a wake-up call to start taking our lives and our purity, our holiness, seriously. Look, look, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. The day of Jesus' return is closer today than it was yesterday. Do you believe that? You know what he's calling us to here? He's calling us to recognize that a time we have on this earth is not our own. The time that God has given, if God has saved you today, he's not saved you so that you can keep living in your sin. He's not saved you that you, so you can flee from him. He's saved you so that you can live with him and in him and for him. He's calling us to step up. He's calling us to wake up. You know, the captain did not need Jonah's help to run the ship but he did need Jonah's prayers. The world cannot intercede. Listen, church, this is, a, this is a desperate plea. This is a desperate plea for us as a church to wake up in a very important area, in the area of prayer. The world cannot pray for itself. 
If we don't pray for them, who will? If you don't pray for your neighbors, who will? See, but how can we do that when we're so caught up living our own lives apart from God, living in our sin and loving our sin? We can't. That's the answer. We can't. And Jonah couldn't. He couldn't do it. He could do nothing because he wasn't dealing with his sin. You know, I've used this illustration before, but it gets me every time. You know, I think of being on an airplane. You know, they get on the airplane and, and they talk to you about, you know, when, when you know, you're not, I know you're not paying attention, but you all know what's happening. The auction mask, they hold up the auction mask and they tell you, right, if the plane happens, you know, if that thing pops out, what do they say first? Put, if you're with small children, now this really resonates with me now as a father of small children, excuse me. But if you're flying with small children, what do they want you to do? You ever think, put it on your face first, then put it on your child. Yeah, and as a parent, isn't that hard to think about for a second? Because all, what do you think about in the moment? What are you talking about? My child is the most important thing to me. I have to save my child. But when you think about the logic of this, it's incredibly powerful. Because a parent who's not breathing cannot help their child. That's powerful logic. Running from God keeps you from breathing. Running from God keeps you from living the life he intends you to live. Our sin robs others of the blessing that God intends to give to them through us. It robs us of our usefulness, our effectiveness. Sin silences our voice to the people who desperately need to hear it. And God uses shame and guilt in a healthy way, not to beat us up, but with the hopes that our sin will be dealt with in the appropriate way. So my objective even here, listen, as we talk about, look, time to wake up. You have to understand something. That's God's words, not my words, okay? This is God's words. God is telling us to wake up. And, and he's not saying it to simply beat us up and saying, you're not good enough and you failure. And you know, he's not wanting us to walk in if you're wallowing in her guilt and shame. He's doing this with the hopes, listen, of boosting hope into our souls into recognizing that he wants something more for us and better for us. And there is more joy to be had in this. And you have to believe that when God is calling us to something, it's for our good. So God uses shame and guilt not to beat us up over our sin, but with the hopes, listen, of exposing our sin so that we can rightly deal with our sin. And that's what he's doing here in Jonah next. Here's his gracious intervention. He wants not only to reveal the shame and guilt of what he's not doing and how he's not being effective, he wants to expose the sin that is an obstacle for him to be used by God. Verses seven, look at it. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and what do you do? Where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord of the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So fascinating how God uses the casting of lots to expose the secret sin of his servant. 
See, really, really interesting. This is you know, a bunch of pagans who are likely, you know, it probably fleshed out something like this. You know, each person kind of came up and they rolled some dice and they had some system to determine, no, nope, you're not the problem, move along. You're not the problem, move And here comes Jonah. You know, here's the best part. Jonah knows he's the problem. He's waiting. So God uses these, the tumbling dice to expose his servant I'm not suggesting that's normative, by the way. <laughs> um, that's not necessarily the way to find out if there's sin in your life. Don't go roll some dice. But I just want you to see this, that this is evidence that God will not let us go. Now, when God exposed the sin, this was the beginning of hope for Jonah and the crew. One of the greatest acts of God's love is that he exposes our sin. See, he knows the destruction that our sin causes in our lives and in the lives of others. And God is willing to produce within us the temporary pain and humiliation of of exposed sin so that we might enjoy the blessings of a renewed relationship with him. So the crew comes at Jonah and they start peppering him with questions. And you might be thinking, like, is this really the time for all these questions? (laughs) Like, they're about to go under, but they needed desperately to find out what exactly was going on. They needed to diagnose the problem. And so they start hammering Jonah with questions. And right here in verse 8, notice this. Jonah is honest about his sin, and he doesn't hide it. He tells him who he is. He tells him about the God he fears. And notice this, he mentions that he fears the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And as soon as he says that, there is exceeding fear amongst the crew members. Why is that the case? Well, simply because in ancient times, in in many ancient cultures, this was common, uh, deities were localized deities. There were deities that were attached to a people group or some geography or or some part of nature. So you'd have a god over this place, a god of the mountains, a god of the seas, a god of dry land, a god of the sun, a god of the Israelites, and a god of the Assyrians. All these different gods. But what Jonah is declaring is this. This god is unlike any other god. This is the god of land and sea. This is the god of all of creation. And they're like, oh shoot. You messed with that God. Like that God is the God you don't want to trifle with. They recognize the gravity of what he's saying and I don't think we have the entire conversation here. I think we have a summary of the conversation because we see here that he, in this conversation at some point, he told them that he was actually fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He probably let them know that he was a prophet and that God had called him to something great and he was avoiding this God. What you need to understand, though, is this. When his sin was exposed, his silence was broken. He could finally tell them about the God of the Bible who is unlike any other God, and instantly their hearts are pierced with a righteous and holy fear. They realize that this God is great and that he is sovereign. They realize that this man has done a great and evil thing. You know, every person must come to this same realization. All of us have run from God in our sin. Every one of us have rebelled against God. Every one of us can be classified as a rebel. But until our sin is brought into the light and exposed for what it truly is, there can be no peace and there can be no hope. I think of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. 
be on the screen behind me here. It says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but, who, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Here is the turning point for Jonah. This is the place where God exposes his sin, where he confesses his sin, and where he will experience the merciful hand upon God even in such egregious sin. And as he does so, I want you to recognize this. In God's gracious intervention, not only is he exposing the sin, he's providing the sacrifice. Verse 11, they say, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and I just want you to see that interestingly, even with the sin now in the open, the storm doesn't subside. It actually intensifies. You see, something must be done to calm the raging sea. Something must be done to Jonah. In verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. You know, when Jonah's sin was exposed, God's silence was ended, and Jonah spoke as a prophet again, telling the crew what they must do to be saved. But the solution to them seemed utterly incomprehensible. They could not fathom this kind of solution. It seemed foolish to them. They had some respect for humanity. They they didn't want to harm Jonah. There's something noble about this. I mean, just put yourself in their position. I mean, to throw a man overboard to calm the sea, really sacrifice his life to appease God's wrath. Now, there must be a better way. There must be a different way. There's no way that this is the right answer to the problem. But verse 13, nevertheless, look at them. They refused. They refused to heed the word of God. The men rode hard to get back to dry land, and they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous, the tempestuous against them. Rowing harder is often man's way of trying to appease God. Their efforts, though noble, were in direct contradiction to the word of God. God had given them the solution. He had told them how they could be saved. God had spoken through his prophet, my life is to be given up if the crew is to be saved. Instead, believing they could go through the storm of God's judgment, they simply tried to row harder and harder, and the waves grew greater and greater and crashed upon them. They believe they can survive the storm without the sacrifice. You know, the impulse to refuse the sacrifice is significant. There is a deep-seated pride in the human heart that says, I can make it through the storm of God's judgment by my own effort. There's something in humanity that believes that apart from Jesus Christ, they will be okay in the fierce wrath of God. But every person must come to realize what these men realize. Look down at verse 13 again. There's four simple words that I think deserve some attention. But they could not. This is the turning point in their story. 
aware of their helplessness and hopelessness, they now turn in desperation to the solution provided by God, staking their lives on the sacrifice of one man. In verse 14, therefore, they called out to God, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Recognizing the worthlessness of their own religions, their own gods who were powerless to save them, their own efforts to row harder, they abandoned them all, realizing that finding peace with the true God was all that mattered. Realizing that the fierce judgment of God was raging against them, they sought the solution that only that God could offer. But this is so fascinating to me. Did you, do you notice how this sacrifice has to happen? How it has to be offered? Why doesn't Jonah throw himself overboard? Did you think about that? Why is Jonah making them responsible for picking him up and tossing him overboard? I think the reason is very important because they had to embrace and accept some guilt in the sacrifice. They had to have culpability in offering this sacrifice. And even though they wanted to remain innocent, like Pilate, who washed his hands, they are too guilty of offering the sacrifice into the sea. For them to be saved, listen, this is true for you and I, isn't it? They had to recognize their guilt in the sacrifice. The link to Jesus Christ is unavoidable. Jesus did not take his own life. He was nailed to that tree by the hands of guilty men. As they were guilty of sacrificing a man who had done them no harm, so too all of humanity is responsible, guilty of offering up the Lord Jesus Christ who did no harm. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. There are so many striking parallels here between Jonah and Jesus, but there is one massive difference, isn't there? Jonah was thrown overboard into the storm of God's wrath because of his own sin. Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath for our sin. Because he alone was sinless, he alone could be our only substitute. On the cross, Jesus put forth his life as a willing sacrifice to deliver you and me from God's righteous judgment. On the cross, we see how God graciously intervenes and deals with rebels like you and me, don't we? He took what we deserved. He was cast out by men. He gave his life to appease the wrath of God. See, the gospel is all about God's storm and his sacrifice. Christ went into the eye of the storm and he offered himself as the sacrifice, absorbing and paying in full the wrath of God for your sins and mine. At the cross, Jesus endured all of hell 
so that you and I will never know what hell is like. And in taking the full weight of your punishment, the storm that raged against you, notice this, the storm of God's wrath that was waiting and raging against you, all of a sudden, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, was ceased, it was halted, the sea went calm and silent. And in verse 15, notice this, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. The storm of God's judgment is stronger than you are. You cannot survive it by your own effort. You will be destroyed unless you are saved by the sacrifice of someone else. That is the message of the Bible. So what did these men do? They threw Jonah overboard, but look at how they responded in verse 16. What was their response? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What happened to these men? They were mercifully, graciously saved by God. Notice the three things they did. They feared God. He became their God. There was no other gods who could compete with this God. Every other God falls by the wayside and God alone, the true God, becomes their God. Notice this, secondly, they worshiped God. They offer him sacrifices, the, the method, the means of worshiping in that culture, sacrifices to the God, praise for what he had done, a recognition of his saving work in their lives. And then lastly, they served God. They committed themselves to this God. They made vows. God's sacrifice was their salvation and it transformed these sinners. You know the exciting thing as we look at this text is this. We celebrate those very same truths today, don't we? And our response is to be the very same response of these sailors, mercifully saved by the grace of God. 